as you've made your way there, let's pause and pray. Father, this is your book, and these are your people. And what a wonderful combination that is when we sit underneath your word. And so I pray that you would position our hearts and our minds there by your spirit to discern what your will is in hearing this word. Make us to know you more and thereby to know you as supreme treasure and pleasure and goodness as Lord as master as our hope as our king and so I would ask that you would make yourself known to our hearts in that way as we approach this text in Jesus name we pray amen all right, we come off the heels of a few messages that helped to clarify as we communicated what the will of the Lord is for His people and what the will of the Lord is for His people as they gather in the way that we gather and do what we do. And all of that is to bring you to Himself someday. And up until that point, we have the opportunity, uh, I won't say obligation, even though there is that, but we have the opportunity to know Him more, to plunge into the depths of what we've been invited into, to meet and to know an infinite God, and thereby to find that He is the supreme treasure, joy, goodness that we are to look to and that even in looking at him you will find what it means to follow him in obedience uh, to abide in his word to obey these commands especially to love him and to love one another uh, bring us to first peter this morning uh, in particular because of verses eight and nine but i also want to bring us into this moment in time to these people that Peter is writing to, probably sometime in the mid-60s, and to the key of what it is to understand this whole letter, which is going to be found in two words in verse 1. And then to cross that historical and cultural bridge to 2023 and to apply this to us. So, you begin by understanding that this letter is the first letter of Peter. And it's written, verse 1, as an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The two words that you must focus in on to understand the whole first letter of Peter is elect Exiles, two words that are not found anywhere together in the ancient world because they don't go together. 
It's almost like saying a blessed prisoner. There's some sort of oxymoron like that. But what you have here is elect exiles who have been dispersed in the region because of their faith in Jesus. They're being persecuted and therefore being scattered. And we know that in the uh, kingdom of God here on earth, that's uh, one of the major ways that the gospel spreads to the end of the earth. Okay, so, so when the persecution is happening to the church, especially the ancient church, it just further moves the gospel out. It never extinguishes the gospel. It just pushes it throughout the ends of the world. But elect exiles tells us what is happening with God's people in this world. They are His. He has chosen them. He has saved them. He has called them to Himself. He is using them, right, to build His church. He has birthed within them this hope of what is to come. He has sprinkled them with the blood of His Son. He is sanctifying them by the Spirit. He is at work in, in completing a work that He began in them. But while they're here, they're experiencing suffering and persecution. But putting those two words together uh, alerts them to the fact that they are still here, or His, so don't be confused about that. And yes, it is very true that you are also exiles. It's one way also to uh, alert them to the fact that their kingdom is not of this world. That they may be these temporary citizens of these places throughout the world, but this is not their home. And therefore to be elect is to be in the palm of the Lord, to be in His Will, verse 2, uh, they are these people according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Notice the Trinity work in these elect exiles. This is all according to the foreknowledge of God, that they be elect exiles here, that they be spreading to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In the sanctification of the Spirit, we've talked about that at length the past few <coughs> weeks we've been together. They're being made holy by the Spirit, especially in these circumstances, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. They're being made holy by following Him as the Spirit leads them. It's harken back to uh, Matthew chapter 4 when the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And Jesus' uh, obedience and faith to the Father is tested as he experiences suffering in light of that. And so the same thing is somewhat taking place. We're being pressed, tested, as he's going to reveal later on, <clears throat> tested with, by fire, uh, that our faith is shown to be genuine, to the praise of Jesus, but the, the Trinity is here at work doing this very thing. And so how do you, how do you speak to people 
in America in 2023 about what it looks like to be an elect exile? Well, the same test is at play whether you're experiencing plenty or an affluent type of culture and lifestyle or whether you're being uh, persecuted for your faith. The, th the same question is being asked to your spirit. Is he better than this? Now, it may be easier in a persecuted environment to say, oh, yeah, he's better than this. But what about an environment like ours? Where it begs the question every single day that you get up, is it better to know the Lord and to seek him than to enjoy this pleasure, whatever the case may be? Now, good gifts and pleasure come down from the Father in heaven, so they are to be enjoyed, but they're to be enjoyed in light of Him. In other words, they're supposed to point further to Him so that you press in to an infinite God to enjoy infinite pleasure. But the same question is asked of you. Is, is the glory of your life, of your day, is the amazing part of your existence today the fact that the Spirit is at work in you to make you more like Christ so that when you come into the actual presence of the Trinity, you are enjoying a pleasure that's not worth comparing to whatever you experienced here. Is an eternal living hope at work in you to drive you to continue as a follower and to grow in that? Or is there... Only the hope of the next best thing. And you have to reorient your mind and your heart and your soul every single day to that new and living hope. And that's what Peter is going to do for them in this letter. That's, that's where he's going to bring them. It's awesome to me that you follow Peter through the Gospels. And you see this, what we kind of think of as this bold and brash figure. He's always listed as first in the list of the apostles. He, he always seems to be that way. He always seems to be out front. He's, you know, he's taking that sword and he's cutting off the ear of that Roman soldier. He's the first to speak out, he's, even if he's wrong. You know, this is Peter. But when you get to this, this sanctified, spirit-filled, apostle who is experiencing persecution and this time not denying the Lord and and he's kind of uh, one of the main pillars in the church and he's trying to encourage uh, the churches throughout the region and, and those that are popping up everywhere as as Paul is going around the world and some of the others are scattered he becomes this gentle apostle who who speaks hope at every instance that he writes, he's softened as he deepens in faith. Never, never loses that, that kind of strength and boldness in the gospel, but becomes more wise and Christ-like in how he wields the sword or how he encounters persecution. And didn't Jesus foretell how Peter would experience these things? 
He said, when you get old, you're going to be led by the hand to places that you don't want to go, foretelling what kind of death that Peter's going to experience. He's going to be brought someplace, you know, that you don't want to go, be killed in a way that you don't want to be killed. Church history tells us that in that instance that Peter was killed, he was crucified like his Lord, but he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die like his Lord. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. We assume that it is. Church history seems to tell the same story, but, but I'm, I'm trying to zero in on who Peter became as he grew in faith. As the sanctification of the Spirit came and he understood the gospel through what he suffered. So he writes to those chosen by God to suffer. Suffer for the gospel, suffer to spread the gospel, suffer to understand the gospel. And then he brings them into hope right here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So right there, He's telling them how the Christian life is working, and then in verse 3, He reminds them of the gospel. And I've, and I've preached this to you over and over again, but Peter's going to remind us, Peter and Paul write these, these two seemingly powerhouses of the faith. Always begin and continue and end with the gospel. If you forget to meditate on what your hope is or forget where you're going then you're going to run out of steam in the Christian life pretty fast. It's, it's taken me a long time in life to realize that I have to have the end in mind with whatever it is, or the goal in mind to continue on doing what I'm doing, or to continue on in the hard thing. And the hard thing is simply waking up every day sometimes as a Christian. Because it means certain choices. It means dying to self. It means being willing to be put on the chopping block for your faith. And you can only do that if you know, if you believe, if in your heart you have full trust and confidence in this living hope that we have been born again unto. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then we above all are to be pitied. If he's not raised from the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy your life, tomorrow we die. But if he is, then it means certain things for us today. It means certain things for us when we leave here. It means certain things for us when we go to sleep tonight. It means certain things for how we sleep tonight. So don't forget the gospel. The beginnings of the gospel the process of being sanctified in the gospel, and then the end of the gospel, an inheritance. So these people don't feel like they are those that are going to inherit an eternal kingdom 
from a completely sovereign, eternal king. They are pushed out of society, pushed out of their homes, pushed out of their cultures and influence, and pushed out of any sort of economic hope even. So they don't feel like they have any sort of inheritance, right? This isn't the way that somebody with this type of an inheritance lives, right? Well, in God's economy, it is. For a time, until eternally, we do inherit. What, what cannot die imperishable? So Jesus reminds people that God's the God of the living, right? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now. How? Because they're alive with him. So the living hope is an inheritance that's imperishable. It can't die. It's not affected by the fall. It's, it's undefiled. Sin hasn't touched it. Unfading moth and rust cannot destroy it. Because why? It's kept in heaven. It's kept in the presence of God where those things are not able to come in. Jesus prays to the Father and says, None of those that you've given to me have been snatched out of my hand. Because you can't take what's God's. So if our hope is held by Him, in Him, through Him, to Him, it's guaranteed. That's why Romans 8, 29-30 ends with the fact that we are glorified. But you're saying we're not. We're exiles. Yeah, but you're elect exiles. Which means your glorification is sure. Verse 5 who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, you know, Romans 8 is one of those uh, major, major chapters in the Bible that is just worth revisiting over and over and over again. And in Romans 8, we're told that, that what's going to be revealed is being longed for by his people, by creation, by the angels. Everybody should be longing for that day to the point that we're praying for that day to come. That, that this would be the greatest thought to us. That, yeah, you have things in your life that you still want to do. I understand that. But is that subservient? Or does that take second place or last place compared to the thought of, the reality of, the truth of Jesus coming to take you to where he is? It has to. And, and here's our problem that's kind of different from theirs. We are so tempted every day to think that there is something better than that or something worth more of our pursuit and focus and energy and time than Him. So, verse 6. In this you rejoice, the gospel, what he just explained, verses 3 through 5. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by 
various trials. So trials and testing are not meant to be pleasant, but they are meant to result in good. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, another amazing chapter, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So you don't see a full revelation of glory, but yet in faith you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a believer. Otherwise, your faith would be null and void. If you didn't believe in the things that have not yet been seen. Some of the things that are, a lot of the things that are seen, that are temporary, that are passing by, passing away, are evidences of what is to come. Of the glory of a God who creates, who transforms, who redeems, and who gives us a living hope of something yet better to come. A lot of you like to go to Colorado. Brother Ray just got back from there. And it's gorgeous, right? You, you look at these mountains and it's just mind-boggling that these things exist and that these places exist. And yet they, they are not even worth comparing to what he's going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, they're not even comparing, worth comparing to the new Jerusalem, which is his people. The glory that will surround and resound from all these things is, is beyond comprehension. And we just read in 2 Corinthians 4, there's like an eternal weight that's beyond comparison. It's like so big, the, the joy of it, the glory of it, that you have nothing to compare it to. So we're, we're seeing a wasting away of our outer self, of the, of the outer things, the things we see, the things that are passing by, this world and the people in it. But for those who have been born again to this living hope, the, the soul is being renewed. You are being grown. You, you are maturing into this believer that's going to be part of a church presented to Christ on the last day. It's like the old illustration of the caterpillar that becomes a butterfly, right? You see this worm-like figure. And then eventually he goes into this chrysalis. Then you'd be like, well, that was it. But then something beautiful, unimaginably beautiful, emerges and flies around in all its glory. Now, I'm not promising you that you'll be able to fly. I don't know where we got that idea. But there is a glory for you that is unimaginable. And you have to keep your mind and heart set on that. It is not wrong to want that glory. To want that imperishable, undefiled, heavenly existence, even physically. 
You're supposed to. You're supposed to recognize that we have contributed to this, this uh, destitute, disfigured reality. And to want something else. Those faithful figures in Hebrews 11 remind us that. That that you should look for a city whose founder and builder is God. Paul. Paul even mourns his own body. And is like, man, I need to get a new one of these. And some of you can say amen. Because this isn't it. This is not it. Now, here's why these trials or this exile or happens, especially for the Christian. Verse 7, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if our Lord's faith was even tested through what He suffered, why wouldn't we expect ours to be? So that every trial becomes not only an opportunity for us to see that the Lord keeps us and is at work in us, but it's to deepen that faith, to deepen our dependence on God. Um, I read that somewhere last week. Where that every, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, where everything that Paul experiences that even brings him to the point of death, where the despair of life itself is to get them to rely on God. And what's the point of that? Because he really is the only source of life and strength and hope and peace. He's the only one who can orchestrate all things for good. So if we're relying on God, then we are part of an opportunity or, or a situation which will show the reality that God is that one. That we are not that one. That He is the good. That He is the powerful. That He is the sovereign over all things. That He is the wise. And that we are simply children of His, whom He cares about. And dependence on Him communicates that, uh, not only to a watching world, but to brothers and sisters who need encouragement in their faith. So, but the big idea in the testing of your faith is that it's going to result in praise and glory and honor. Not for you, but for Jesus Christ, who is doing this work in you. We just read in verse 2 that the, the sanctification is done by the Spirit, and it's to be obedient to Jesus Christ, who sprinkled us with His blood. So when we become this holy people, which we're going to get to at verse 13, uh, He gets praise and honor and glory. You get the benefit of being His people who exist in His glory, but he's doing it. It's from him. He's the source. He's the reason. He is showing 
just what His grace and mercy and loving kindness can do, even against the backdrop of evil and sin and death, even against the opposing powers of the spiritual realm, His grace and mercy and love can transform eternally to the praise of His glory and honor. And then verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You you know that Jesus prayed for you specifically as recorded in John 17. He's not only praying for those apostles and disciples who are going to experience his crucifixion and then their subsequent persecution because of that. He's praying for you who are going to believe through their word. In other words, they're going to communicate to you what they saw what they saw fulfilled in Jesus. They're going to communicate to you who He is. They're going to communicate to you what He looks like here on earth, in flesh. They're, they're going to show you Him through the Word of God, which comes to them. They are going to be about what we are going to be about. Seeing you see Him. And if they're about that, then we should be about that. Because I can't paint you a picture or buy a mural anywhere that will show you what Jesus looks like. But I can tell you. And then you don't have to see His physical face right now. You should want to. But all you're going to have to hear about is what he looks like through this. And his word will show the world that it is powerful enough to transform the sinner. To keep them even to the day of the salvation of your souls, which is the outcome of that faith that we have in someone we don't see. And isn't it quite amazing that, that through the living and abiding Word of God, that people get born again to a love and a desire for someone they have never seen or touched in the flesh. And I would say that's not because we're delusional people. I would say because that's how amazing He is. That even just hearing about Him is so much more transformative and powerful than anyone that has ever or will ever exist. You know, I bought this book a while back about Bo Jackson, and it's called The Last American Folk Hero. And some of you watched Bo Jackson in the flesh, saw this incredible athlete do things that seemed superhuman, you know, climb, climb the outfield wall, uh, throw somebody out from left field 
when they're taking off from third base. I mean, just do weird things. Just snap bats over his head, which is far more difficult than it looked. Uh, yeah. So, and the thing about it, when you read this book, is you do read about a folk hero. You read about somebody who seemingly, you know, saved planes from crashing and, and all this sort of stuff. And it's amazing. It's an amazing figure. You're, you're entranced by this. But it's not transformative. It's interesting. It's crazy. Uh, it's unbelievable. But then you shut the book and you're done. But when you read about somebody like Jesus, when you read the gospel, when you read about who he is and what he's doing and what he's done and what he's said, when you're actually able to see with eyes of faith who you're reading about, it is eternally transformative. And I always tell people that's why you're not glorified yet. And that's how you get glorified in heaven. You, you, we have glimpses of him. We have images of him enough to transform us, begin to transform us into his image. But when you actually see him face to face, that's how you go from sanctification to glorification. You see the object of your faith. You're living in his actual physical presence. The, the revealing of these things that, that Peter just talked about at the last day is what is going to make you glorified. You, it, it is incomparable. That glory is incomparable to everything else you've experienced here. So much so that it is going to make all the desire for sin and the flesh just fall away. It, I don't know what else to say. And he tells them, Concerning this gospel, this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Understand this, that your Old Testament prophets and authors know by the Spirit of Christ in them that there's a person coming who's going to suffer and receive glory for it. In other words, they know the gospel. Jesus even tells them to look, Abraham looked forward to my day, saw it and was glad. They're, they're looking for him. They know he's coming. They know what he's going to do. And they know what's going to come of it. And they also know he's not revealed in their time, verse 12. But they're experiencing and writing these things and, and predicting these things by the Spirit of, of Christ in them for us. And then we get to see the revelation or hear from those who saw the actual revelation of these things. And he tells them, these things have been announced to you, they've been preached to you by people who have seen them, this is the good news given to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And the, it gives this interesting phrase at the end of verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. The angels don't 
experience what humans experience. They're certainly loved by God. They're certainly dwelling in His glory. But they were, from the beginning, have done that. They haven't experienced grace and mercy from a crucified Savior. They haven't seen God take on their flesh and die for them. They are blown away how that benevolent, immensely benevolent, benevolent grace and mercy transforms disgusting enemies of God. The, the angels that are still with him in his presence have never been enemies of God. They don't know what it's like to be on the other side of things and to be brought from death to life. They've always been spiritually alive to him. Or the ones that fell with Satan then became spiritually dead, and there's no return. So the gospel thing that's happening here is amazing to them. So much so that we're told that they rejoice when... Uh, God brings one of these sinners to repentance and faith. They're rejoicing. You think that's some sort of uh, spiritual illustration. Uh, that's an actual heavenly reality. They, they understand how to worship. And they praise and worship when that happens. So there's always praise and worship in heaven because it's always happening so how do you move from there on with the rest of your life you 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 want to get caught up in these moments of looking forward to the glory that is to come the hope that is to be yours okay now like like the angels tell the apostles as they're watching christ descend into heaven okay now, he's going to come back that same way. Let's move on. Because we're, we're not there yet. So, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now we said sometimes in recent weeks that to preach sanctification is to just lay burdens on people. But to preach Christ is to show them what sanctification looks like. So to look at Him is to see all those fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all those things are seen by looking at Him. All the ways in which you will be matured in your faith and conformed into His image is, is, is done by looking at Him. And if He's the object of your faith, if He is your desire, if He's your treasure, if He's your hope, then as you see Him go, so you will go. And you will leave behind the, the former things. They'll be childish to you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Don't be silly. Can you believe I used to do that? Can you believe we used to say that, think that, want that thing? 
He's making a holy people. We already looked at uh, what's being presented to Christ in Revelation 21. Or predicted in Colossians 1. He is going to have a holy, spotless, blameless bride. And the bride is the collective people of God. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So even in your trial, you have a responsibility or a way in which you must conduct yourselves. You proclaim, even in trials, who you are, who He is. And you see that from His people. You see that, that as His people suffer and as they are troubled with whatever the case may be, that they are proclaiming and living in a peace that is foreign to natural man. That they have a, a presence with them of a hope that is theirs, that will not pass away. And so they endure or they overcome or they exist in the midst of that trial in a way that communicates hope. We're told in Revelation and in Romans 8 that those martyrs, those people who are being persecuted to the point of death for their faith in Jesus, they conquer or they overcome by the word of their testimony the blood of the Lamb. They're, they're always couched on, founded on the blood of Jesus. They're amazed by this. That is their hope. That is their greatest treasure. Verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. So, this is happening for His glory and for your good. That Jesus as the spotless Lamb who is to be slain and then is to be resurrected by the power of God in glory is for His glory, but it is also for your good. Because of these things, there is faith and there is hope in God. If Jesus doesn't get up, get out of the grave alive, those things don't exist. He created and inaugurated a, a church and a people that have this living and abiding hope because of what He did and because of the fact that people saw what He did. So you can take everything we just said, remembering the gospel moving forward in holiness because of the gospel, because of how we treasure Him as 
loving God. Really. I mean, if you, you love God, you're constantly remember why you love God. Constantly thinking about why you love God. Constantly thinking about why he's a God that is lovable. Supremely lovable. Okay, now take that and then move on to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So, you love God because you've been born again by Him, through Him, to Him. And it would only follow, once those souls have been purified, that you would earnestly love one another from that pure heart. So you begin to see how the gospel sums up what Jesus said is, is the summation of the law, the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Peter's communicating it again. And this happens through a, a living and abiding word of God. It, it doesn't pass away. And he brings home that fact um, by quoting Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And what is the Lord? Uh, the word? This word is the good news that was preached to you. So, the gospel always stands living and effective. Living and effective. And as it's preached, that seed, that Word gives life. And we're told in John 1 that that Word is Jesus. And He gives life. He calls to life. He comes to life. He lives. He's a God of the living. And so if He is the enduring, eternal life-giving truth, a manifestation of all that God is, if He's our hope and glory, if He's what we're being made into His image, then what's left but to look to Him? Always. And in your context and in my context, that's a tall order because we have things that want to compete with his image but I'm, 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 I exist to try and make clear that nothing competes with his image and you'll see that more and more the more you look at him that's why our, our prayer this month is that you would grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God the more you know him the more you know who he is the more you know uh, what he said and how good that is, the more you know of the hope that he's explained for us to look forward to, the more that's what you treasure above all else. It becomes evidently clear, obviously clear, that he alone is worthy of that supreme place in our hearts and minds and focus and times and wallets and whatever else you have. So, 
Let's all be about seeing Him. And then let holiness follow. Pray you'd respond to Him in these moments and then we'll stand and sing together.